Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Ted Lanzaro with uh, Lanzaro CPA. Uh, Ted is a certified uh, CPA and he is an investor, an accountant, an author, a speaker. Boy, I mean, uh, Ted has a lot of experience into uh, tax strategies for businesses and uh, high net worth individuals. Uh, being an investor uh, to himself, it gives a lot of great perspective for Ted to kind of see the panorama of what uh, investors deal with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, he has been a veteran in the industry for about 30 years now. Uh, he is the author of Tax Smart Landlord, wherein uh, he uh, has laid down several strategies uh, of how to save taxes and what are the best uh, uh, practices for uh, doing business uh, from a taxation perspective. Uh, so with that, uh, Ted, I want to welcome you to the show and I'm honored to have you on. Uh, for listeners who may not uh, have heard about you, uh, give us some background uh, to them, please. Oh, well, th first of all, thank you for having me on. It's always my pleasure, my honor to, 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 to help any uh, group of real estate investors uh, with some knowledge. So sure. I got started somewhere around uh, 2002. A friend of mine came to me and he's like, uh, I was working as a CPA in a real estate department of a big firm. And a friend of mine came to me and he says, you know, we got to start buying properties. Uh, you got to read this book. And the book was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by uh, Robert. Oh, I, mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of investors have read that book. And, and I read it and I was like, you know, this is really cool stuff. You know, as a matter of fact, I was telling my friend, as a matter of fact, you know, a lot of my real estate investor clients are really doing well. I think you're right. I think we should, you know, go out and buy some properties. And so he and I, we were living in South Florida at the time, and uh, he and I went out. And the first first day we went out, we put offers on three single family houses in mm -hmm. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And we bought them, you know, eventually bought them. We fixed them up and um, we rented them, right? And that was the beginning of our sort of real estate you know, investor career. Uh, mm -hmm. That particular partnership uh, ended up turning into about a dozen single family houses and a couple of apartment buildings. Nice. And mm -hmm. um, around 2005, uh, as the market was getting hotter and hotter, um, we decided to uh, sell all those properties. We sort of cashed out. Mm -hmm. And I moved up here to Connecticut and I started my own investing firm here, uh, buying uh, multifamily properties and doing uh, some flipping and rehabbing. Somewhere along the way, um, I was networking at a real estate investment club and somebody found out I was a CPA and they said, well, what tax strategies are you using for you know, your investments? And mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, here's a couple of things that I'm doing. Oh, would you mind doing a presentation for our group? And there was a group of um, real estate investors in uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida. And this guy had a group up there. Mm -hmm. And so I went up there and I spoke to the group and I had never 
done a, um, a presentation before. And I literally sat there with my knees knocking together and reading off my PowerPoint slides, you know. And, uh, but at the end, you know, everybody clapped and, you know, a bunch of people talked to me and, you know, I picked up a few clients and I was like, you know, this is great. Now I literally do, I probably do six or seven of these things a month. Right? Nice. <laughs> and and I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I, I use, I, I only use slides if people ask for them, sure. and, you know, because I literally do, you know, I have four or five presentations that I literally do off the top of my head now, but that first time, man, it was, it was scary. And um, it led to, um, uh, after, after years and years of dealing with uh, and helping real estate investors save money, I decided, you know, I'm going to put all of this, all of these things that I've learned mm -hmm. into a book for investors. Sure, and sure. Uh, so somewhere around, I guess, uh, 2014 or 2015, I wrote the Tax Smart Landlord. It's been updated a number of times since then as the tax laws change. So every time we have a major change, I have to up, go in and update it. Sure, sure. But, um, it's turned into uh, a really nice way to share knowledge, you know, sure. with, uh, with a lot more people. So even the people that I don't personally do work for, um, I can still share knowledge with them. And really sure, great. sure. No, I think, and, and, and thank you for that, uh, Ted. I mean, I, I always like to say that veteran uh, investors uh, like you and who've been dealing with uh, tax issues and uh, from a certified CPA background, uh, you come up with a lot of professional things that normal investors wouldn't, uh, you know, structure it and things like that. Uh, and it's always a great thing because, uh, I mean, I'm myself a realtor and I've been operating full time and I can see that those different classifications that we will talk about. It makes such a tremendous difference that if you're not knowing, and I always like to say that real estate can be used as such a great hedge, you know. So with that, uh, Ted, uh, if you can maybe help us understand, uh, you know, how different tax laws we can use and how a different classification of investors can uh, perhaps impact uh, how you're saving and, you know, sort of taking deductions on your taxes. Sure. Okay. So let's, let's with this. Everybody is different. Okay. So not only are there going to be different classifications of investors that we'll talk about in a minute, but every investor has their own profile. They have, sure. you know, they have a W2 job, own a business, are they married, single? What are their goals, right? Because not everybody's goal is complete tax minimization. Sure. How many properties do you own? Do you actively manage? All of these different things, right? Yeah. So when I'm in a room of 25, 30 investors, say, for example, um, a strategy that one of them would be great for one of them would be awful for somebody else. Sure, possibly, sure. Mm -hmm. right? So essentially there's three kinds of investors according to the IRS, right? Mm -hmm. So the first one is passive investors. And what this refers to is the ability to deduct rental losses against your ordinary income. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a passive investor is somebody who invests in somebody else's deal. Mm -hmm. They don't have any management control. They're not involved in the operations of the investment. They could be anything from a silent partner, like just me and you doing something together and you're going to run it and I'm just going to give you some money for a return. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, all the way up to a large syndication where um, th there's a limited partnership or an LLC that has you know, 15, 20, 30 limited partners and a couple of general partner operators that found the deal. Mm -hmm. um, but people who just invest for a return, 
uh, without management control are considered passive investors and sure. they are not allowed to deduct rental losses against their ordinary income. Interesting. Now, mm -hmm. What happens is, is those losses accumulate as what's called a passive loss carryover. And mm -hmm. they carry over from year to year and they can be used in one of three instances. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they can be used to offset other rental income or other passive income that the taxpayer has mm -hmm. in a given year. I see. Only or, the rental income, not, not like your W-2 or anything, basically. Not your W-2, other rental income or other passive income. Okay? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, or they can be used in, in a scenario where um, somebody um, somebody's income falls below $150,000 a year and they're an active they now they're considered an active investor and we'll talk about that a minute in a minute well then they may be able to use those loss carryovers um, against their ordinary income up to $25,000 a year mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. when you sell the property mm -hmm then you use all of the passive losses that you carried over from that property. So I see. you never lose them. You just, it's just more of a timing of when you get to use them. So that's passive investor. Right. An active investor would be somebody like yourself, for example, who owns uh, a lot of units that they manage themselves. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And what the law says is if I'm an active investor, I can deduct up to $25,000 a year of rental losses Mm -hmm. against my ordinary income assuming mm -hmm. that my or but that my adjusted gross income does not exceed one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year i see if i make a hundred thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. and i own a bunch of rental properties and i have a twenty five thousand dollar rental loss well then i can offset that rental loss and only pay taxes on seventy five thousand dollars a hundred that i earned minus twenty five that i lost on my sure. investment. Mm -hmm. now when i say losses i want to clarify this for people I don't mean that your property actually loses money, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. There's a concept called depreciation expense, sure. which mm -hmm. is basically a rational allocation of the purchase price of the property that you get to take every year against the net operating income of your investment. So the idea, the whole reason people invest in real estate is so they can have the cash flow right. mm. from the property but it's offset by the depreciation expense and therefore it's, they have no taxable income. Right. And so it's tax free cash flow. Sure. Right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Now what happens is for an active investor, if their income goes above $150,000, and this is what happens to a lot of professionals who are also, in, you know, own their own properties sure, is their sure. income goes over $150,000 a year. And at that point they're treated as passive investors. Okay. Because now they can't, deduct any of their rental losses because their income survives called a phase out. Right. Okay? So meaning you're referring to professional, basically professional status. There, I'm right? just calling, I'm just talking about active right now. So I see. If, I, mm -hmm. if I'm an active investor and my income goes over $150,000 a year, then I'm either, I'm either considered a passive investor most of the time or can qualify as a professional then I may try to qualify as a professor because that's the, that's the way out. Like once your income goes over $150,000 a year, if you're an active investor, then you want to be able to qualify as a professional because that's the only way you're going to be able to. Right. Okay. If I may, Ted, um, so once the income goes about $150,000, um, you're saying that for lack of a better term, 
you are a high income earner uh, at that uh, at that point and hence uh, you are considered passive and perhaps you are liable to a higher tax bracket is that kind of what the uh, IRS is deeming that to be right exactly that's exactly right so the IRS says well once you hit 150,000 we're not going to allow you to deduct rental losses anymore <laughs> I see right? I mean, and, and look I mean we can we can argue all day whether that's a stupid rule or not I think it is but you know sure. but but mm -hmm. it is right? right so now in order to be able to deduct those losses you have to be considered a professional a real estate professional is somebody who is in a real estate related business, okay? Mm -hmm. Could be brokerage, could be property management, you could just be a landlord, um, you could be a developer or syndicator. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of categories, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. If you put more than 750 hours a year into that business and it's more than half of what you do, mm -hmm. Then you can qualify as a professional and as a professional i now can deduct as much rental loss against my ordinary income as i possibly can so sure. i've got a client who's a real estate broker he makes about six hundred thousand dollars a year okay owns a bunch of apartment buildings uh every couple of years he buys a new one so last year he bought a uh a new property and we did a cost segregation study on it and he got um, a cost segregation study is a depreciation study that breaks out the um, the components of the property and allows sure. mm -hmm. you to accelerate depreciation, especially in year one, um, where there's a rule called bonus depreciation. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that as well. Yeah. Uh, Ted. Mm -hmm. So in this scenario, my client had $200,000 worth of depreciation in year one. So he was able to take his $600,000 of income because he's a professional and deduct $200,000 of rental losses, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then he I also made $125,000 retirement plan contribution. Okay. So in this, in that year, he only paid taxes. He made 600, but he only paid taxes on um, 275. I, I believe that. I believe that. And, and I mean, there are extreme cases also, Ted. I mean, I'm an example of that where sometimes, you know, I'm draining this whole thing to like zero and just sometimes not even paying a tax. I mean, here I am owning a couple of hundred houses and first, uh, first hand example of seeing that how much deductions and depreciation you can take. It's, it's, it's absolutely unreal. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just like if you tell someone who's not uh, intelligent or not knowing the sort of the depths of, you know, how you go on to achieve it, it's, 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 it's absolutely mind blowing. And, and this is the, the information that I believe that I think every single person ought to know because everybody's paying tax. And if you can lower the tax or even eliminate the tax for that matter, there's nothing wrong in it. And IRS, in my opinion, has made these rules just for, for some of these provisions that are there. Right. And now speaking of uh, all these, like, you know, how can be different uh, strategies uh, you, you can have for let's say if someone is a, uh, a high income earner you know earning lots of money what are some of the ways you can suggest that they can go into it i mean they cannot become professional uh, for example or is there is there any way out uh, they can uh, uh, look into this yeah so there's a, there's a handful of things that you can do as a high income earner investing in a passive capacity, right? Mm -hmm. If I invest $100,000 into a syndication, right? Mm -hmm. and let's say I'm gonna get an 8% return, just as, sure. as a 
example, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to get my $8,000 a year, okay, mm -hmm. distribution. Now, so at that point, I'm, I'm getting tax-free cash flow, okay? Sure. Mm -hmm. I'm getting my $8,000, but I'm also getting a K-1 with a negative number on it, right? True, true. Now, I can't take that, I can't take, maybe I can't take that loss, but I've still got the 8,000 tax-free dollars, right? Sure. Mm. So now what I can do with that 8,000 tax-free dollars is I can see whether or not I can find another deferral mechanism for my salary, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe I haven't funded my 401k at work yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. I put the $8,000 against into my 401k at work. Sure. Mm -hmm. So what is, what is it? I didn't deduct any rental losses against my ordinary income. What I did do is I reduced my ordinary income by deferring money into a retirement plan without changing my financial situation. I, started, sure. I had an extra $8,000, I used it. If I'm a business owner, I can do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can put that money um, into a self-employed retirement plan. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I've reduced my ordinary income. I could make a spousal IRA contribution for my wife, for sure. my husband. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm reduced my ordinary income. Or I can contribute to a health savings account if I haven't maxed out my... So one of the things we do with high income uh, earners is just making sure they're, taxed, they're, they're maxing out all of their tax deferred vehicles sure. with the extra cash flow they're getting from their passive investments. Right, right. So these are all definitely deferrals. There is nothing as such that, uh, you know, how we can, as a professional, you can use a, uh, you know, all the depreciation deduction you can do. There's nothing of that sort uh, for high income earners. Is that kind of, uh, would that, that be a right statement? Yeah, that's correct. That That is correct. But think about it from this standpoint, okay? You know, there's, it, it's still, it's still a huge advantage. You're still getting tax for cash sure. flow. And to the extent that you can fund a deferral, it's actually a double, double bang. I'm getting tax-free cash flow and a tax book, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Now, and the deferral is typically going to be a pretty long-term deferral. It's going to be at least um, five to seven years until they sell the property. And if I, if I fund a retirement plan, that may be a 20- or 30-year deferral of that money. Sure, right? sure. That's so there's huge. A of, <laughs> there's a lot of time value there. Absolutely. The other thing I can do is... I can also, if I'm an active investor, right, mm -hmm. with my own portfolio, mm -hmm. I still can use, um, I can still use the rental losses from the passive income to offset my rental income from my, from my other rental investments. So sure. if I have $50,000 of net income from the properties I manage and a $50,000 loss on my K-1 from my passive, then those net out. Sure. Mm -hmm. And now sure. I pay zero tax on the other money I earn. Sure. So that's another that's another strategy. And then the 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 third one that um that I often talk about is if I'm a passive investor, and, mm -hmm. and this one's really important, right? Mm -hmm. It involves some record keeping and some responsibility. But think sure. about what we talked about before. I'm a passive investor, I'm in a deal, I'm gonna be in that deal, let's say for five years, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna get my eight and this in scenario where I've invested a hundred and I'm going to get my 8% return. I'm going to get my $8,000 tax-free dollars every year. Right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And then in year five, when the property sells, hopefully it's going to be for a gain and I'm going to get my piece of the gain also. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is that accumulated passive loss carryover offsets mm -hmm. the capital gain 
Sure. Mm -hmm. And I only pay tax on a, on a small portion of it. And it's long term. So I only pay tax on at 15%. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now, so now what I want to do mm -hmm. is all the, all the money that I spent, mm -hmm. find that passive deal. And a lot of passive investors, they go to conferences, they travel to look at properties, they network, they take sure. people to lunch, you know, all of these different things. I'm going to tell you, you need to be keeping track of those things. And I see. Mm -hmm. Adding them to the other deductions line on your K1 mm -hmm. and increasing the passive loss carryover. So let's say, just as an example, I, see. I, mm -hmm. I had, uh, it, it, without any, any of this, I sold, a pro I had my $100,000 investment. When it sold as a capital gain, I, I, it was really, a, they sold it for $150,000. So now I have a $50,000 gain, sure. right? I have a ninety thousand dollar carryover. I'm going to pay tax on sixty thousand okay? dollars. Mm -hmm. Well, but if I have been if I have been adding all of my um, expenses for finding sure. properties, and let's say that's another three thousand dollars a year, mm -hmm. over at, at the end of five years, I've got an additional fifteen thousand dollar carryover. Mm -hmm. Okay, which can then be applied against that capital gain. So instead of paying tax on $60,000 of capital gain, I'm only paying tax on $45,000 of capital gain. And all I did was keep a spreadsheet every year of the money I spent looking for passive investments. I see. Now, related question there, uh, Ted, is that, um, you know, you said keep a record of, uh, you know, all the expenses you would have done for whether it was conferences, books, and finding properties and things like that, right? So let's say year one through four or something like that, you know? But what if, if you would have already itemized those uh, expenses uh, in the preceding years? Um, how, how would we go about that? Uh, or should we not take advantage of those? Uh, you know, like generally you have the deduction for, uh, let's say, educational uh, items or home office and things like that, where, you know, you typically kind of allocate that bucket, right? So are you saying that don't allocate there? Uh, just keep a record and accrue it so that when you're expecting this capital gains uh, from the sale of the property, you can use these um, uh, expenses and uh, sort of offset that. Is that uh, what you're referring to? Well, what, I, what I'm saying is if you had nowhere else to deduct those things, I see, uh -huh. <laughs> right, then add them in. Sure. Now, let's just as an example, right? So I'll, I'll, let me say this. So Maybe I'm a, a doctor or I'm a CPA. Let's, let's sure. use me as an example. I'm a CPA, right? Sure. My primary mm -hmm. business, I invest passively, which I do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, sure. for me, I'm not going to allocate a portion of my cell phone bill mm -hmm. to my passive investments. Like you wouldn't allocate a portion of yours to your real estate. Sure, business, sure. Right? Mm -hmm. But if, so I'm going to try to deduct that. But if I didn't have any place else to deduct that, maybe I, maybe I'm a W2 employee and my boss and my company pays for my cell phone or, you know, or I, I never even think of deducting my cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. well, then I don't have any place else to deduct it. So I'm going to put it in that passive bucket and increase my passive loss carryover. If I have someplace else to deduct it, that will benefit me in the current year. I use, I put it in that, more beneficial bucket. I see. Some people don't have that bucket. And that's what I'm talking about when I say everybody's different and we try to, we try to tailor what we're doing to everybody's specific situation. So sure. for some people, that's a very viable strategy.
Sure, sure. Now, Ted, let's let's talk about um, you know the depreciation, the bonus depreciation, and cost segregation, all of that, right? Uh, a lot of passive investors sometimes do not understand uh, that yes, your cash flow is coming tax free, and you are getting K one. Uh, which you know obviously is negative. Uh, can you maybe talk about how depreciation perhaps brings you the negative and the uh, sort of the uh, offsetting uh, factors that come into it, and why IRS has it? Because uh, as I you know indicated, a lot of passive investors do not relate that. Oh, I can make the cash flow, and at the same time, oh, I can get a K one that has a negative number on it. Can you maybe uh, speak to it, please? Yeah. So. Think about it from this standpoint. I wouldn't invest in a in a real in a, any real estate venture, whether it was a syndication or just buying my own property, if I thought it had a lot of negative cash flow. There's some some sometimes you might want to do that, but sure. as a general rule, you don't invest for negative cash flow. You always True. invest for positive cash flow, right? So now um, I've got this positive cash flow, this net operating income for the mm -hmm. company. And normally I would just pay tax on that. If depreciation didn't exist, then I would just pay, that would be my net income and I would pay tax. Sure, but what sure. the IRS rules say is you're, al you're allowed to depreciate the property. You have to depreciate the property. Sure, and sure. typically um, the depreciation on a residential apartment building or residential rentals, um, the IRS says the building is depreciated over 27 and a half years. Mm -hmm. If it's a commercial building, it's depreciated over 39 years. Okay. Right. So uh, if I bought a building for $3 million, I would typically allocate 80% of it or more to the building. So let's say 80% of 3 million is $2.4 million mm -hmm. of building cost. I'm going to depreciate it over 27 and a half years. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of around um, about $90,000 a year mm -hmm. of depreciation for that property. Sure. So if I have $90,000 a year of net operating income, I now have zero taxable income because I'm offsetting the depreciation. Right. Right. Now, if I do a cost segregation study, which is a depreciation study that's done by an engineer and an appraiser, mm -hmm. and they go in and they, they basically break out the components mm -hmm. of the property. So think about an apartment building, right? Every, let's say there's a hundred apartments in a building. Every one of those apartments has a kitchen, a bathroom, probably bedrooms or closets. So everything, the IRS says that everything that I can unplug, unattach, unscrew, and literally take away with me is what's called tangible personal property. Sure. Tangible mm -hmm. personal property can be depreciated over five years. Okay. So think of those kind of things, cabinets, sinks, uh, appliances, toilets, tubs, vanities, mirrors, shelving, anything I can literally unscrew and walk out the room with, right? Mm -hmm. Those are five-year pro five properties. So that's what the cost segregation engineer is doing. He's identifying all that five-year property. Then he's going to go outside and he's going to look for what's called land improvements. Land improvements are things like the parking lot, fencing, curbs, sidewalks, not the one in front of the street, but the ones that run from the parking lot to the to the door of each unit, right? Um, all of those land improvements, landscaping, are considered 15-year property and they can be depreciated over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So typically, in a scenario um, like an apartment building, the national average is around 25%. 
So you're wow. typically gonna get around 25% of the cost of the building is gonna be either five-year tangible personal property or 15-year land improvements, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now to make it even better, so that, that would ordinarily just be great. I could take a portion of it and divide it by five, that would increase my depreciation. And now instead of taking $90,000 worth of depreciation, I might be taking $200,000 worth of depreciation. Okay? Right. At least for the first five years. Right. So mm. personal property is used up. Now, to make it even better, there's a concept called bonus depreciation. So for every dollar that's allocated to either a five-year tangible personal property or 15-year land improvements, the IRS says in 2019 that I can take 100% of that depreciation in year one. Wow. <laughs> so now, on a say, let's say that's $2.4 million building, we allocated 20% of it. Maybe we have somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, $500,000 of tangible personal property. Might that partnership gets $500,000 of bonus depreciation in year one. Wow. Same thing mm -hmm. for the land improvement. So they're going to end up with somewhere around $600,000 of combined bonus depreciation in year one. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm, a, if I'm a limited partner in that and I own, say, 1% of that, I'm going to get 1% of that $6,000 bonus depreciation allocated sure. by K1. So right. I may have $8,000 worth of... Um, cash flow, but my K1 says negative $6,000. Sure, sure. Right? <laughs> Makes know, it extra sweet. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so that's typically how the depreciation is used to offset the net operating income. And again, I'm going to have depreciation um, in year two, year three, year four. Uh, and, and so typically for at least the first five to seven years of a syndication, <laughs> most of the time, You'll, the passive investor will never see a positive number on their table. Right, right, right. Awesome. And, and there's a stat out there, uh, Ted. I think, uh, and I think, I, and as you're alluding to, is that first three to five years are easily in the negative, and 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 that's when I think business plans are optimized to say that yes, maybe consider a sale from year four through five because that's when you, you know your. Uh, all of your depreciation is uh, kind of coming to uh, a zero and then you're going in the positive territory. Does that, does that make sense, Ted? It does. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of them are also, you know, four to, you know, five to seven year plays just because it's hard to, hard to um, talk people into parting with their money for longer than that, you know, sure, sure. Be in a five to seven year play as opposed to a 20 year play. Sure. Sure. Know? Now, speaking of, uh, you know, all the daily practices that we uh, do from a, you know, like a, from a full-time investor uh, basis or, you know, syndicators who are doing different activities, what can you tell, uh, Ted, about uh, how best we can keep our bookkeeping and records and things like that so that in case of an audit, uh, we kind of have a trail of various things that we have done. Can you maybe share some insights uh, around that? Yeah. Yeah, I totally can. And it's not just, you, you obviously audit proofing is definitely, you know, uh, a consideration. Um, but the other thing is, is that all good tax strategy mm -hmm. is built on a foundation of good record keeping, right? Mm -hmm. Because when I'm doing tax planning and strategic tax strategy for investors, I need them to be able to give me good numbers. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. because if they can give me good numbers, 
they can tell me, look, this is, these are the P&Ls on my property. So like if you have your 200 properties, you hand me your P&Ls and I can tell how much money you made. Sure. And if you handed me nothing, then I'd be guessing, right? Sure, you know? sure. So by giving me the actual numbers, I can, I can do a much better job of strategy. So mm -hmm. now with that, with that being said, um, I think when you get to, if, if I own one to five, um, properties, um, then I would say to you, um, you know, whatever way that makes you comfortable, like, you know, I would say, okay, if you like QuickBooks, that's great. If you like any of the other, um, you know, more property manager, uh, kind of software is great. Um, but for the people that own one to five units, they could probably do it on a spreadsheet. Right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And as long as they're getting everything, that's my big concern. Are you getting everything? Are you recording everything that went in and out of your bank accounts, in and out of your credit card, in and out of your loan statements? That if you're right. getting all that, I don't really care um, how you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, once I get over that five units, or you know, uh, and I have you know, two hundred units, well, then I think you know you can't keep track of who owes you money in your head anymore. Sure. Right? <laughs> you know, so now you're going to need uh, you know something a little bit more robust whether right. that be, you know, a uh, Appfolio or Buildium or Yardy or, you know, whatever the, there's a whole bunch of these, you know, softwares out there that are both, that are sort of combination management and, and accounting um, building. Right. 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 And, and, and that, and those are really advantageous for, um, for larger investors now, but they, but they all have one thing in common. They're mm -hmm. all garbage in, garbage out programs. Sure, sure. So you got to make sure that you're putting the right information in. That's right? that's exactly true. Like you, you know how you classify, and that was going to be my follow-up question as well. Uh, there, Ted is uh, that uh, you know, like the classification of how you're entering the data. Like sometimes, you know, like I can tell, uh, I mean, having done this on a daily basis now that, you know, we'll get a log of what things uh, maintenance have fixed, right? So, and and our CP always advises, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well as to uh, how important it is to, uh, you know, properly classify whether it's a repair or replace or a fix and things like that, uh, and how those things add up cumulatively annually uh, can you maybe speak to that as to why it is so important to properly uh, do those classifications? Yeah, well, so there's a, there's a difference. So we'll, we'll start by clarifying the difference between a repair and a capital improvement. Sure. A repair mm -hmm. I can deduct in the year I pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. A capital improvement has to be added to my depreciation schedule and is typically going to be depreciated anywhere from five to 27 and a half years, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I may not get the immediate benefit of that, of that improvement, mm -hmm. right? So the IRS says, when we come to look at your books, if you recorded something as a capital improvement on your mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. and then decided to make it a repair on your tax return, you're giving us more ammunition to question you, right. To question you and reclass it back as a capital improvement because sure. that's how you classified it at the beginning, right? right. Mm -hmm. So it's really important. So two things. One, it's really important how you classify things on your books mm -hmm. because you're better off always classifying things as repairs 
and then capitalizing them as improvements if you have to, mm -hmm. then the other way around. I the see. The second mm -hmm. thing is that you really should, be, as, as a landlord, and I'm sure you are, but for the, all the other landlords out there, you really should become very familiar with the IRS's definition of repair versus capital improvement. Because sure, there's sure. a whole, there's a, uh, five or six years ago, the IRS revamped what's called the Tangible Personal Property Regulations. Mm -hmm. And they said that there are certain things that are always considered repairs. I see. Okay. Uh, uh, give us some examples uh, on that, uh, Ted. I'd be curious to know. Yeah, heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. Roofs. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, painting. Uh, carpet replacement. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those are all considered repairs. A lot of people capitalize those things. Uh, parking lots. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. pay the parking lot. A lot of people would capitalize that. IRS says that's a repair. Interesting. Right? And, and it's right on, it's literally right in those regs. There's a whole list. And I share that. So, so what I did was when I did the Taxmart Landlord uh, book, I also um, did a, a, like a series of spreadsheets and, and like a tool, you know, what I call a toolkit for mm -hmm. investors. And one of the forms that was in that is a list of all things, things that are always considered a repair. And uh, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've shared that list with investors because it's such a valuable list because um, a lot of, I see a lot of that kind of stuff being capitalized on returns that I get when people call me and say, Hey, Ted, you know, I'm looking for a new accountant. Can you take a look at my last year's taxes or whatever? And I go to look at the depreciation schedules. It's one of the first things I would look at. Sure. And I see a lot of those items on there and I'm like, Oh, you know, there was a missed opportunity, you know, that could have been expense. You could have saved more money in that year. Sure, you know? sure. Now, okay. that, that's interesting, Ted, that you're saying some, uh, like an item like roofing, for example, is a repair and not a uh, capital improvement. Uh, that is that is quite interesting because typically, as we know, roofing, once you replace, it will last you for, you know, at least 10, 15 years if done right. Uh, but uh, you're advising that it should be a classified as a repair. That's an interesting one. Right. And, and it used to be so before. So yeah, it is interesting. And, and it doesn't really make any sense to be honest with you. Right? <laughs> well, you know, when you look at it, it doesn't necessarily make any sense because it sure. used to be right. Mm -hmm. Before they did, before they did the regs, before they mm -hmm. revived the regs, it used to be, if you, the, the old rule was if you fixed a portion of the roof, mm -hmm. okay, then it was a repair. If you fixed the whole roof, like if you did a rip and reply sure. on a roof, you know, on a, on, a, on a small house, or if you literally redid the roof on a larger building or something, mm -hmm. that was a capital improvement, right? And they're mm -hmm. all very expensive. Sure. It's on the list. I don't ask me why it's on the list, but it's on the list. That is, that is a new one for me personally, for sure. So yeah. I appreciate you sharing that, uh, Ted. Now let's talk about, uh, you know, how someone can kind of leapfrog uh, from one property to a bigger property, as we call a 1031 exchange. Uh, give us a rundown of, uh, you know, what it is, what are the sort of some of the uh, motivations behind it? Uh, take it away, Ted, on that. So look, I mean, as an investor, um, it's, I think, probably the number one tax st strategy for growing wealth as a real estate investor. Because sure. if, if I can sell a property without paying any income tax on it, mm -hmm. it gives me more money to be able to um, 
reinvest you know, faster. I'm going to get wealthier faster. Sure. So I had a client of mine. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the rules in a second. But I had a client. Well, I'll, I'll use this as an example. Sure. I had a client of mine, and he was a plumber. And for the 10 years of his, he was like 30 years old when he started. Mm-hmm. And for the first 10 years of his plumbing business, he would use the profits to buy small rental properties in and around South Florida. Mm-hmm. This is back in the late uh, 90s. Mm-hmm. Okay? So um, he built up a portfolio over about 10 years. He built up a portfolio of about a million dollars worth of properties. A lot of small mm-hmm. units and, and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So he now goes, so he goes in about 2001, right? Mm-hmm. He, he goes and he sells his entire portfolio for a million dollars. And he had paid around $500,000 for that portfolio. Sure. So he had about a $500,000 capital gain. Okay? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'm going to sell my properties. I don't want to pay the tax. What do I do? Mm-hmm. I said, well, you should do a 1031 exchange. Well, how do I do that? Okay, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to arrange to sell the properties. Before you close, we're going, to, we're going to hire somebody called a qualified intermediary. You're going to have 45 days to identify a new property and 180 days to close on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you buy a, another rental property, rental property to rental property, mm-hmm. then that's considered a like kind exchange. And that's the whole idea of the section 1031 exchange. Mm-hmm. Now, like kind means rental to rental. So it could be, in his case, he went from residential to commercial because he actually bought a commercial shopping center mm-hmm. um, on a main road in South Florida. And he spent two years. So he bought it for a uh, million dollars, what he sold his portfolio for. Mm-hmm. And over the next year, he put another million dollars into it, fixing mm-hmm. it up. Sure. Mm-hmm. And he um, put new tenants in it, got it all mm-hmm. moved up. Mm-hmm. And every time I drove by there, he'd be out there working on it and everything, right? And and then a couple of years later, so now it's like about 2004, mm-hmm. right? Um, he turns around, he gets an offer for three and a half million dollars. Nice. Mm-hmm. Rising market in South Florida at the time, right? Very hot market. So now he's got, he's got his first, he's got like a million and a half dollars in this thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He's got the, so he's got about a $2 million capital gain at this point. 500 from the first one and a million that he put into the second one. And, and I guess he bought, yeah. So he has about, um, yeah, about a million and a half in this. He's got about a $2 million capital gain. And he's like, well, I don't want to pay the taxes on $2 million. What do I do? Mm-hmm. I said, well, we're going to do another exchange. Right. Mm-hmm. So he goes out and he sells his, his property and he turns around and he buys six auto zones in Texas, right? <laughs> triple net, triple net leases, right? Long-term high credit um, thing. He paid $5 million for this property. So he actually added some of his own money into it in form of a loan. But now he's got triple net leases, no management. Mm -hmm. He gets about $40,000 of net income every month. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and at the time he was 40 years old. So that was 2005. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So he's making almost half a million dollars a year doing nothing. <laughs> hires from plumbing. Sure. Right? Now, so so I said to him, he says, Well, he says, uh, I said, Well, look, I said, you're never gonna, you're not gonna have to pay this capital gains, you know, until you ultimately decide to sell these. He said, I'm never selling these. So are you kidding me? He's mm-hmm. like, he's like, I'm gonna give these to my kids when I die. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happens is is when you pass away and you own a bunch of property, right? Mm-hmm. 
well, you get what's called a step up in basis as of the date of your death. Right? <laughs> so whatever the fair market value of those properties are at the date of your death, <laughs> that's the cost basis to your beneficiaries. I see. Right? <laughs> so now I don't think he's died yet. I haven't, I haven't seen him in, in probably 10 years, but I don't think he's died yet. And so when he does pass away, that capital gain that he owed that he's been deferring forever. <laughs> and if his kids sell that property, literally the day after his funeral, right? No capital gains wow. on the property. So he's, he's laddered up uh, his properties, built a tremendous amount of wealth and sure. never paid a diamond, never paid a diamond taxes. <laughs> right? And you know, that's like sort of the, uh, sort of the ideal scenario. No, absolutely. That's a right, right. I mean, that that's that's a great story right there, uh, Ted. Now, a couple of questions around it, Ted, is like, let's say you proper uh, you buy a property uh, A and you know you sell it, you go into a property B. So, for example, in your scenario, uh, your plumber when he bought the second property, right, uh, he fixed it up and things like that, and then sold it for a higher, uh, uh, you, you know, for a, uh, a higher uh, price, right? So the basis that we are calculating here is that the purchase price plus the amount of renovation he did or is it just purely looking at the hard one saying okay you bought it only for uh whatever price and that's your basis how, how does that uh, come into play the basis of the property you sold mm -hmm. carries over to the new property right so right in his scenario, he had a half a million, let's say he had a half a million dollars of basis. Mm -hmm. He sold it for a million. He went and he bought another property for a million. Mm -hmm. He has, but his basis is still only 500,000, the carryover from the previous property. Right. Now he goes and he puts another million into renovating it. So right. now his basis in that property was a million and a half dollars and he sold it for 3.5 million. So he had a $2 million gain. When he went into the auto zones, his basis was a million and a half dollars. I see. So any improvement dollars that you would invest, you, so in effectively you're saying they do not count towards the basis. Is that what you're saying? They count towards the basis. They get added to the basis. They will. They will. Scenario, okay. That million that he fixed up the shopping center added to his basis. So his basis went from 500 from the previous property mm -hmm. plus a million he put into he, I the see. property. Yeah. I see. I see. Got it. So all of them uh, definitely count. So it's it's really what you invest is what counts and they get added on. Okay. That's, that's powerful. That's absolutely powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another related question that Ted is that the newer property uh, has, has to be obviously greater than uh, whatever is your, uh, you know, uh, selling price. Is that, is that true? Or can you not do like a uh, half and half meaning, you know, perhaps, you're not going that much uh, higher. You're just maybe going a little lower. How does that work? If you do, if you want the entire 100% deferral, mm -hmm. then you need to buy a property of greater or equal value, equal or greater value. I okay. see. I see. Now, okay, I can't find it. This happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I can't find a property of greater or equal value that I want. Right. Mm -hmm. So I buy a property, let's say it's 50% of what sure. I sold. Mm -hmm. Well, I can do a deferral on half. Okay. And I can pay the tax on half. I see. Got it. So the okay. proportional deferral is allowed, you're saying? There, there is. Yeah. You're allowed okay. to do a proportional deferral. Now, with that being said, there are a lot of rules with this. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways that you can end up with what's called boot or taxable gain 
in a in a scenario, right? It's a little heavy for you know for a podcast, but I know we would probably go into those. Right, yeah. right. We we probably wouldn't have went into those waters for sure. Yeah. Now a couple of last questions, uh, Ted here. Um, as we know, you know, uh, CARES Act came with a lot of good uh, incentives for individuals and businesses, right? Uh, can you maybe talk about some of them? And specifically, I'm interested uh, for viewers to know like how some of the operating uh, losses can be carried over or perhaps uh, some of the improvements that you can do can be, uh, you know, carried over as well. Can you maybe speak to that? Okay. So there was a couple, there's, there's really like a couple of different issues here. Sure. Hmm. One of them is that for commercial property owners, right? And this is people who are primarily like in, so what they said was uh, qualified leasehold improvements are now 15-year property. And mm -hmm. because they're 15-year property, they're, they're subject to bonus depreciation, right? Nice. Mm -hmm. So that's issue one, right? Now, you're not gonna find those in residential apartment buildings. Right. Mm -hmm. You're gonna find them in shopping centers, office buildings, mixed use kind of stuff, okay? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, but if you own those restaurants, hotels would have sure. those things, sure. right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, if you're in that business, right, then you then you have those, right? And then right. now you've got uh, this bonus depreciation that you can take. So then the second issue is, if I have bonus depreciation that exceeds my ordinary income, mm -hmm. creating what's called a net operating loss. Loss, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Meaning that I actually have negative income for either 2018 or 2019 or 2018. Sure, sure. And that's right. all a paper loss. Let's, let's put it that way as well. It's a paper <laughs> loss, but right. it's a paper loss, but it's, a, it's literally negative income on your tax return. Sure. Okay? Mm -hmm. Right? Because your, your losses exceed your income at that point. Now, instead of having to carry them forward pre-COVID, mm -hmm. okay, with the CARES Act, I can now carry these back five years. Interesting. But when, I, but when I do it, I have to start with the farthest year, right? So think about uh, if I do it in 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14. From so I 14. Have to start with 2014. 14, correct. Right? Mm -hmm. So now here's kind, of, here's kind of an interesting thing. Think about it. So I've got a guy who actually has this scenario, and he's mm -hmm. got about a half a million dollar loss that he needs to sure. allocate, mm -hmm. right? So he says, well, let's do a carry back, right? Well, in 2014 and 2015, he, he wasn't making that much money, right? I see. <laughs> so he was. So he can go back and he can he can knock out a hundred thousand dollars of income in 2014, uh, and a hundred thousand dollars of income in 2015, and another two hundred thousand dollars of income in 2016, and a hundred in 2017, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say the benefit of that. Let's say the benefit of that is that um, he would have, he would save uh, $100,000, okay? Mm -hmm. You get $100,000 refund, sure. right? And, and he's like, yeah, well, great. Oh, wait a second. Next year, you're going to have over a million dollars worth of income. If you carry it forward and take the whole thing against that million dollars worth of income, you might have $150,000 net benefit. Sure. Mm -hmm. So the point being is, is you have to look at the options you have to carry sure. it back mentally sure figure mm -hmm. out what the recovery would be mm -hmm. and then carry it forward and figure and out what the recovery is going to be in order to make the most optimal use 
for you, for your scenario so it depends i guess uh, what has happened in the prior years if it makes sense to carry it back or perhaps you, you know if it makes advantageous sense to go uh, go forward being carry forward basically right because just because you can doesn't mean it's the best possible use sure that. sure 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 absolutely boy uh, it's been a ton of uh, uh, <laughs> you know uh, information and great content uh, ted here um uh, any any other tips you can share b- uh, before i mean we're almost at time for the show but i appreciate uh, if if there are any other uh, tips you can share from your vantage point yeah i i tell people look you should be talking to your cpa um when you buy before you buy a property before you sell a property and before you renovate a property okay I see. Mm-hmm. definitely before the end of the year even if you haven't done any of those things right, right? Mm-hmm. Because all good, the majority of really good tax strategies have to be implemented before sure. and during those things. Sure. When a client comes to me and says uh, in March of 2020 and said, hey, Ted, I sold three properties in 2019. How am I going to save some money? Too late. <laughs> too late. I mean, too late for a lot of things that we could have sure. done. There's a few things we could do, but they're, but they're, they pale in comparison to what we could have done beforehand. Same thing with renovation, same thing with buying, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of those things have not only an opportunity, but also record-keeping responsibilities that have to be done that if you, if you know about them, right, then you do them. Whereas sure. if you wait, and you didn't do them, then you lose the opportunity potentially to take advantage of a strategy that was available to you. Sure, sure. Great advice. Great advice. And couldn't agree more that it's, it's always best to engage, plan, strategize, and execute accordingly. And I, I'm always a very fan of uh, some of the rules and uh, some of the advantages that come with it because knowing after the years now what an impact it can have to the bottom line it's, it's just simply unbelievable and for folks who may not r- really have taken advantage of those i mean i highly encourage to engage a cpa like uh, ted here and take advantage i mean uh, their staff is available they are all available uh, remotely as well so location and any bearings uh, any barriers are really not an issue so uh, with that uh, ted i appreciate uh, uh, you coming on it's been a blast uh, knowing all the uh, differences i personally learned a lot as well uh, kindly share with our listeners uh, you know your contact information and uh, you know different things your firm as well does sure yeah so um the uh, my website is www lanzarocpa.com l-a-n-z-a-r-o-c-p-a.com on the website you can get a free copy of the tax smart landlord and you can make an appointment to have an introductory call with me if you'd like my email is ted at lanzarocpa.com you can feel free to email me with questions i'm always happy to help fellow investors um so Um, So that's not an issue. And my office number is 203-922-1742. And, you know, I'm always, I'm I'm happy. My practice is about proactively helping people uh, both make and save money. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you're such a giver, Ted. I mean, I have viewed your prior different podcasts as well and some of the webinars that you do there are so many great articles on your website as well so i I encourage all the viewers to 
definitely take advantage of uh, Ted's uh, company and his services. So it's been a blast. I appreciate it, Ted. Uh, a veteran that you can come on and talk about, uh, you know, passive investments, the depreciation, uh, bonus depreciation and cost segregation and all the different things that are happening uh, on a daily basis and how investors can take advantage of uh, not only the passive investments cash flow and as well the negative deductions you can take via your K1 is incredibly insightful and you're hearing from uh, the authority right here. So thank you for coming on. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot more things that happen and I will be looking forward to having you on another uh, future episode of the podcast. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. <music>